Hi, I'm Melissa Smith. I'm Spencer Ziegler. I'm Serena Halstead, and welcome to Data Lit, a podcast for educators by educators. So we're at the end of our rubric series, and what great learning opportunities we had in each episode as we talked with expert educators about their use of rubrics. In our first episode, Sue Brookhart, author of the book How to Create Rubrics, explained the importance of tying rubrics to learning outcomes and help us recognize some of the common misconceptions about rubrics. Then we had our very own Wake County Public School English language arts educators sharing their experience in developing and using rubrics with students. From them, we got the do's and don'ts of developing rubrics, as well as some practical applications on how to use rubrics to enhance teaching and learning. And finally, a discussion on interactive rubrics. Now, that name was unfamiliar to me until we decided to do this series on rubrics. But thanks to our digital learning coordinators, we learned more about interactive rubrics, how to build them, and use them. Now, in this episode, we are going to focus on grading with rubrics. We choose to reference this because throughout the series, grading popped up as being tricky for teachers, and we specifically ask each of our guests from this series what advice they have about grading with rubrics. But before we get into that, Melissa and Spencer, what are some things you recall learning within this series on rubrics? So I think as you mentioned, I remember from being in the classroom that one of the challenges in creating a rubric was to define that scale for the rubric. And so oftentimes, you know, when a teacher starts to think of the scale, they either in their head, they have, oh, I'm going to use a four-point scale or I'm going to use a five-point scale. So they're thinking of numbers or they're like, okay, I'm going to have a descriptive scale. So it'll have these predefined terms, poor, good, exceptional kinds of things. But I remember that when we interviewed Sue Brookhart on creating rubrics, she offered teachers a really great strategy for approaching this work. And the way to fill in those performance level descriptions in each cell next to the criteria is to ask yourself whatever you would call a four. Maybe it's just a four. Uh, But first ask yourself, where does proficiency sit? Mm. Are you a district that says a three is proficient and a four is even better than proficient? Yes. Because if you are, (laughs) I recommend you go down the three column first and say, Mm. okay, what would a proficient student's work Look like. like. I love that. What would a proficient student's work look like? And then is easiest for me, but you can go, you have to go both down and up. It's easier for in my head to go up first and then down, but either way works. Um, Then what would work look like that's really better than that? Yeah. And if there may not be any, you know, Hmm. if, if some of, if, for some of the real simple learning outcomes, especially as you say, at the very low level, low grade levels, I don't mean low level of yes, yeah, I mean yes, first or second grade. Uh, some of those, it's hard to imagine what a student could would do that's any better than, that's appreciably better than that. And, and so there may not be any. And, and so you, you have to ask yourself, does this, if this, assignment 
only allows me to see if a student is proficient. I, if, I'm, if I have a report card that says I also need to report if the student is even better than proficient, you notice I'm not saying exceeds the standard because that gets us into other trouble. <laughs> but there, it is possible to be not just proficient, but like really good at something. That is quite possible. What you need then is you need another assessment that, oh. that requests from students some sort of response where if they've got the chops to step up to better than proficient, that task will bring it out. So what Sue offered there, there was a lot of key points, but for me, I feel as though the emphasis was on thinking about the standards and asking what would it look like to be proficient at the standard and describing that for the learner. So permission to not force a description if it doesn't really fit. Yeah, I like that. And it, I feel like just we naturally want to think either left to right or right to left, but just that slightly unnatural point of just start with proficient, start with the standards, even though that isn't necessarily left or right, and then kind of work out from there as the the standards and task calls for it. I thought that was, it makes an intuitive sense that otherwise I don't think I ever followed when I was making rubrics. Yeah, me too. When I think about the idea of, you know, making three, the proficient, it just makes me think, then what about those students who are like really exceptional? Are we going to leave them at the proficient or are we going to look into the fours to, but what is the standard really calling for? And if we can get to the standard at the three, then I think the four is a tack on. So I think what she was trying to say is it depends on how you, you defined it. So and, and the, the, it's the standard and asking yourself, what would be better than the standard? Not exceeding the standard, because I think that sometimes gets us into trouble. But yeah. what would be better than? Because we know that there are aspects to a standard that is just better than. But I also liked how she gave us permission, again, yeah. that if it's a very simple, like if you're thinking of Blue's taxonomy, and if it's a very simple ask of a standard, then permission to every one of those cells in your rubric doesn't have to be filled out. Like yeah, forcing right. it into something where there just isn't, right. it's okay to have grayed out cells, I guess. Yeah, and that, that's liberating. And that point of like, maybe that comes from another assignment. Mm-hmm. I think that makes yep, sense. Yes, yes. We get so zoomed into the specific assignment that we're grading that we forget that we don't necessarily care about grading one specific summative assessment. We care about throughout the term, quarter, semester, whatever it is we're using, are we collecting enough evidence to describe our students are? So it's okay to have multiple assessments speak to, to what students know and are able to do. Okay, yeah. So while the rubric can guide us on how students' work will be assessed, I feel teachers can also use student work from previous instruction. Let's listen to Stacy Shaddix share how she and her colleagues use student work with defining the rubric scale. So our rubrics are not met, approaching, met, or Mm -hmm. exceeded. Right. So when we look at met, which is, you know, kind of our baseline where we want kids to be, Mm -hmm. we feel like that is in that 85-90 range. And that approaching we don't want to give that like a 60 that they're closer yeah. than that. So we've started kind of having conversations about 
what what are we actually going to give for for each you know progression on the on the rubric and not being very finite with our numbers and looking mm. more at what do we expect to see what does um, approaching almost getting there look like and formulating our points around that So as you see, Stacy talked about, again, that, that dilemma that we have about what is expected, what is that standard? And again, as a teacher, you naturally want to look at points, but you have to look at points and the standard and what would learning look like, because that is the intent of the rubric to sort of give a description of what learning looks like. And so I like how she shared their ability to step away and kind of look back at the process yeah. and understanding what do those different things mean? If this is the standard, if this is what we're expecting, what would that look like? And then work your way up and below, like what Sue suggested. Yeah, and that, and that seems similar to the first quote that we played a little bit in that your brain naturally wants to do something one way. Like in the first quote, it was like start on the left or start on the right. Yeah. So I'm like, no, 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 start with proficient. And same thing, your brain kind of wants to divide up if there's four things and have it just be like quartiles or something, but kind of stopping giving permission. Um, I do think there's an uncomfortable piece of this where it feels like you're throwing darts maybe to some degree when you're not having it be 75 because three out of four equals 75. Right. But that kind of goes into just there, there, you know, Andrew Ho, um, and I'll drop this in the show notes, talks about how we're, we're kind of weak to numbers and that when we do see something like three out of four equals 75, that leads us to three fallacies that, that kind of, those kind of numbers are more meaningful, more precise, and more permanent than they actually are. So just accepting that, you know, like, no, you are the educator, you are the expert, you're the one that should kind of think about, well, what number is the most fitting for, say, proficiency? That made me think about, I read this article where they said that nobody should fail on a rubric. And I had to pause for a second because they said, as long as you turn something in, then there should be no failure because it's, you're demonstrating some aspect of learning. Mm. So they were proposing that you should at least start with a D. And I was like, huh, then nobody should fail. But I know I've created rubrics where you right. get zero points, <laughs> which yeah. would be failing. But they said, as long as you turn something in, how could that, how can you be penalized? Why should we penalize the learner for turning uh, something in that demonstrates an aspect of the learning? And that made me pause for a while because you're right. I mean, again, this is strictly about learning and demonstration yeah. of learning. You really have to match those two things together. And it gets hard yeah. with rubrics because, again, we have to grade. We have to put something in. And I think that's a... Uh, it's a duality that, that, that is really hard for us as teachers. So that's an interesting point that you made, Melissa. And minus the idea about the numbers, the grading, you know, we're talking about rubrics. And so when we think of the performance descriptors that we place on the rubric, as you mentioned that D, I would want to say that we had a description for what D should look like. And we're also looking at the point where students should be mastering Students are supposed to be demonstrating their learning, but it's the mastery component of it that I want to focus on. And if that D is that the performance description say they did not do what it was expected, then it's a D. Yeah, and I'm hearing there's just a lot of context that goes into how you're going to assign these these points, row and in, in totality. Um, 
so whereas one hand, it seems like grading with rubrics is easy. It's whatever out of four and however many rows or something that we're seeing that there are a lot more variables and that the teachers hold that context. So trusting teachers to be professional when they're working with their PLCs. Now, and, and I think in another conversation, Erin uh, McDermott from Reedy Creek Middle School gave us a pretty useful pointer about how you can make some of those decisions. When we design the rubric, we're really thinking about the total points of the rubric and kind of carefully waiting so that something that's like a relatively small portion of the assignment doesn't have the same weight as something that's a smaller portion of the assignment. So if we're really looking at imagery and that's something that we've explicitly taught and we're really looking for it, then we'll make that worth 10 points. But if there's something smaller that we're maybe not wasn't the primary part of the assignment, just something we're kind of looking for. We might make mm -hmm. that two or four or five points so that when we get to the end, our score is reflective of what we feel like the relative weights uh, should be. So, yeah, I feel like that's she summarized perfectly the kind of discretion that teachers want to use, just like every column doesn't need to be the, the, the same distribution of points. Every row doesn't need to as well. Um, and that goes to kind of stepping back and thinking about what was the point of this assignment? What am I trying to describe? And if the standards here are more heavily weighted to one row to, than the other, then it is okay for those to not to be evenly divided, you know? Right. Or even the aspects of the standards are, again, to me, this kind of work really asks teachers to unpack their standards yeah. in a way that you just can't be like, okay, here's a task on writing. Like, what are the standards asking for? What are the expectations? What do you expect to see when that student has mastered the standard? And then working your way backwards from there so that the, the, the standard, the unpacking, the instruction, the assessment, the grading are all aligned to each other. You know, thinking about the total points and, you know, carefully weighing what we're putting into the grade, an interesting point that came up um, from Sadie Hoover, our digital learning coordinator, was to use the mode. Yeah, and I apologize for the audio quality on this one. I was an incompetent producer when we recorded this episode. When we think about using rubrics, whether in Canvas assignments or any other tool, we can look at the mode score for each standard or outcome. For example, did the student score mostly threes or fours? Consider what the student most consistently scored. And I thought that was quite interesting using the mode because, you know, oftentimes we use the average to give students that final score. Something that I find interesting from teacher ease, and we will draw that for you in the show notes. It says using the mode, this is often helpful to shift teachers thinking away from using averages to calculate traditional grades and focus them on students' most recent consistent demonstration of mastery. And on that note, I'm thinking, okay, the recent demonstration of mastery instead of the average. And I'm wondering, would I be missing any important piece of assignment if I'm only looking at the mode? Thoughts on that? The, I know that I have read that in looking at the mode, it kind of gives you, if you think about every time you are asked to demonstrate your understanding as a learner, you're supposed to be getting better and better. Mm -hmm. And so the mode kind of gives you this sort of like 
let me take your best work or your last work, because if you keep getting better and better, then your mode will be those higher grades. So it's just another way of thinking of what would be the best representation of what that student knows and doesn't know. So I think it's good that we have other measures of central tendency other than just the average. Like we can't always just be doing the average. Like there are other math that's out there. Yeah, and I just keep hearing throughout these kind of conscious decisions that teachers need to be making when they're using rubrics for grading. And that brings to mind something that Sue Burkhart said in our uh, earlier conversation. Remember, um, math first, and then logic second. Remember that if if you're doing rubric-based assessment of Typically, performance assessments led themselves to lab. And a three is proficient. Three out of four, if you do the math, is 75%. Yeah. Which is typically like a C. Maybe, depending on how they, how different teachers grade different ways. But C is not really where most people think proficiency Mm -hmm. lies. You know, most people think at least in traditional terms, B level, at yeah. least for a proficient. Yeah. So if, if they do that exercise, that ought to scare them off simply doing math, which is what you want to do because it's easier. You just add them up and divide. Yeah. And, and I understand that urge. But if you've got a lot of rubric scores, that doesn't work. And it shortchanges kids who typically shortchanges kids who are proficient. And that seems to be kind of a recurring theme throughout our whole conversation this morning, I feel like. Step back and look at it logically. It makes me think of Cult of Pedagogy ran a piece on rubrics we'll drop in the show notes. And then one step to do so is just kind of look down an entire column and say, like, if students only got this, what would their score be? So if they just hit proficiency and that says 75%, you stop and think, wait, that's not quite logical or approaching if, does that mean 50%, you know? So those kind of logical steps, I think, is important, be it whether you're looking at the columns to see where the grade should fall or um, looking at the rows to see, like, which criteria are weighted, applying that logic when you're working with your rubrics. Because at the end of the day, right, when we do have to grade, you have one single grade, number, letter, representation that is trying to summarize everything that the child yeah. knows. So it, it's, it's easy and it's hard at the same time, right? You have mm-hmm. this rubric, that, rubric sorry, that's supposed to make the learning and the demonstration of learning very clear between the teacher and student. Yeah. But it's also very complex when you try to then take all of that and mush it into like one final representation. As you're talking about, you know, that logic and Melissa, you're mentioning that final grade, it makes me think of something that Erin McDermott had said about, you know, calibrating the rubric so that we are on the same page. And we test our rubrics a lot, looking at like what students will commonly do before we launch the rubric of the students and sort of deducting that mentally and then taking a look at, you know, is this really indicative of what a C paper would look like or what a D paper would look like? I think that we've kind of mastered that just to make sure, you know, from our own brains. And then we do a lot of grading together when we first start to make sure that we're really on the same page and that we agree with the grades that the rubric is generating. I would agree that calibration piece is critical. 
On that note of calibrating the rubric, it makes me think of the idea when we say working smarter, not harder. I would encourage teachers to work in teams to develop rubrics for similar assignments they are assessing. So that is a key part of rubrics. And if we haven't mentioned that before, I think it is definitely worth mentioning. One of the key things about when you're creating a rubric is you cannot just do that work by yourself. Mm -hmm. And so to think of the rubric as you you create it, but then you have to kind of like test it out. And so an important strategy in grading and in using it for grading is to take some student work, take a couple of samples, practice it to see, okay, is this what we meant? Then you go on to grading all of them, but starting with a little bit of samples, sort of doing that practice trial run to see, again, are we on the same page about we've set out a grading rubric for ourselves, but when we see the student work, when it actually comes in, does this make sense to us? Are we on the same page before launching out to grade all of the papers or assignments or tasks that you have at hand? Yeah, I think that's always important when developing and using rubrics, but the point of rubrics is not primarily to derive a single score. The point of rubrics is to provide descriptive feedback and describe performance. So I think it's particularly important when you're doing all the little steps, making all the little decisions that we've talked about in this episode to work with a PLC. Because yeah, it does feel a little uncomfortable when you're kind of weighing one column a little bit more than the other or weighing more one row a little bit more than the other. But doing that with a PLC and then making that transparent to the students so they can use it as a tool for them as well. I think that makes it so this becomes a much more effective and efficient way to grade with rubrics. Definitely. So I'm hearing two things here. Work with your team to develop the rubric, but then also collect some samples of students' work and go back and revisit that rubric. Is this what we really want when we said this was a level four, three, two, or one? So definitely collecting samples and working to refine the rubric is essential. Melissa and Spencer, thank you for another great discussion on rubrics. Thank you. Thank you, Serena. As we close out this series, I want to thank our guests and you, our listeners. I also want to thank Maya Smith from Hello High School for her contribution to our theme music. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or further notes, feel free to reach us at www.wcpss.net forward slash data lit. Bye. Take care. Bye.